welcome to Inside the BACB, the official podcast of the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. In this episode, Misty Bloom, the BACB's Director of Regulatory Affairs and Chief Legal Counsel, joins Drs. Tyra Sellers and Sarah Lichtenberger of the BACB's Ethics Department to discuss the history and evolution of ethics standards at the BACB. Hey, everyone. It's Tyra and Sarah from the Ethics Department, and we're here today uh, joined by Misty Bloom, who is the BACB's Director of Regulatory Affairs, and she's also the General Counsel, and she's here to help us get a picture of the history of ethics at the BACB. Say hi, Sarah. Hi. Hey, everyone. Um, So, Misty, thank you so much for joining us. Certainly. Thank you for inviting me to be here. We're excited to have you talk a little bit about the ethics um, here at the BACB. But before we jump right into that, can you tell us a little bit about sort of how you became involved at the BACB because you're not a behavior analyst, right? That's entirely correct. I am an attorney by trade, um, and I appreciate the opportunity to share about the history and particularly the history within the ethics department, but also just my general history with the BACB. Um, In my day, the ethics department used to be called the legal department. And before that, it was just what Misty did in the company. (laughs) Uh, My history with the BACB began back in 1998. You may be familiar with Dr. Gerald Shook, the founder of the BACB, and Michael Hemingway, who worked with the the then Florida Department of Children and Families. I was presenting at a session of the National Organization for Competency Assurance, Now, NOCA, which is the acronym for the National Organization of Competency Assurance. Yeah, that's a mouthful. Yeah, it really is. Uh, NOCA was the predecessor to our current accrediting body, which is the Institute for Credentialing Excellence. It's a lot of- (laughs) NCCA. Well, and and their National Commission for Certifying Agencies. Okay. It's a lot of acronyms, but I'll just refer herein to the accrediting body. Okay. And I was presenting there, and I was presenting on how to work with uh, how private certification boards are able to work with licensing and regulatory authorities. And after my session, Dr. Shook and and Michael Hemingway came up, and they said, here's what we're doing in Florida. Florida developed this wonderful certification program, and we are taking it national. We have incorporated a 501c, well, at that time, it was just a nonprofit corporation. Mm -hmm. So they had engaged in the incorporation, and they were at the process of developing some policies and procedures and arranging some contracts for the transfer of intellectual property and things of that nature. And they brought me on board, and it was a whirlwind. (laughs) <laughs> the next few years of my life were just, uh, it was amazing what was being accomplished in the state of Florida in a private office that Jerry Shook had, had pulled together. Uh, it was fun, to say the least. There were a lot of laws that were implicated in the initial development, getting tax exempt status. Uh, one of the visions that Jerry had was the BACB would ultimately apply for national accreditation. And so many of the initial policies and procedures were set up to be in compliance with the accreditation requirements. So even though you didn't, they didn't have to comply with them at that point, the idea was to create everything so that it would be in compliance. Yes, they chose to do so. And smart uh, guys. Yeah, very (laughs) smart. And and I want to segue for a minute here because many people don't realize that it was the transfer of the Florida program 
over to the BACB. Mm-hmm. And at that time, all the other programs that were similar to what Florida, they had modeled after the Florida program, those all transferred over to the BACB. That transfer was the basis for the BACB's exemption status of lessening a state burden. Mm. And there are more than a majority of states with licensure that all defer to or rely on the BACB's credential to a certain extent. So Jerry and Michael clearly had a vision of where they would be going with the BACB. So while it's a rather long list of the laws that may apply Mm -hmm. when you're looking at disciplinary and ethics, since your focus is primarily on disciplinary and ethics, I will say that it hits on a few key, key ones. And one of the primary laws to consider are antitrust laws. So a lot of my historical work was just developing policies and procedures that would comply with antitrust requirements. There's also a great deal you hear due process. That word is tossed around frequently. Uh, What processes do when a private certification organization is conducting ethical and disciplinary activities that could implicate a state activity. Mm -hmm. And so you get into due process, which really comes, goes to notice and an opportunity to be heard. Yes. Those are the essential points of due process. And the other applicable legal standards that I was working with the board in the early days included contract law, Mm -hmm. just the basis development of operational contracts as well as some intellectual property law. Well, just to set the stage, you were um, contracted for a number of years? I was a contractor with the BACB from 1998 to 2008. And then by mid-2008, I was full-time in-house legal counsel. You took the leap. Well, (laughs) I think it was a natural progression because as certificate numbers increased, as the volume of work continued to increase, my role, sure. particularly the legal implications of ethical enforcement, increased over the years. So and, you are the perfect, sorry. Go right ahead. Uh, you're the perfect person to provide us with information about the history and evolution, evolution of the ethics standards at the BACB. So to get us started, can you take us back to 1999 and the first set of disciplinary standards that were developed? Thanks, Sarah. Absolutely. Uh, It was a fun time for me because I had traditionally worked with uh, the individuals who focused their entire professional careers on the business of certification. These were certification managers. They were ASAE certified managers for handling association matters. And working with Jerry and Michael, was a, that was a very diff- different experience. The best way I would describe it as every action was intentional. And every policy or procedure that I worked with in the development or refinement with Jerry and Michael had to undergo significant review. It was a very intentional process. A lot of that had to do, again, with Jerry's vision that we would be, the BACB would be an accredited organization. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that Jerry was reporting to a board of directors comprised predominantly of behavior analysts, Mm -hmm. as well as a consumer representative. So any standard or policy and procedure that we developed had to be legally defensible 
but also had to be behavior analytically defensible. <laughs> That's a mouthful in and of itself. Yep. <laughs> so, so it sounds like um, it sounds like you were helping to ensure that um, everything that was done or designed complied with certain applicable laws. And I'm wondering what are the laws that are most relevant for designing a disciplinary system and addressing disciplinary matters? Well, antitrust law is perhaps the most relevant because it goes to the reasonableness of the standards that are enforced. And then the next is the due process that we discussed, which is typically what you would see in an administrative procedure if somebody were gaining or losing rights to something. Well, it's the same if somebody is gaining or losing rights to be credentialed mm -hmm. or certified by the BACB. There is a consideration for contract law. In their application for certification, there is something called a certification processing agreement. And yes, that is a contract between the individual and the BACB. It's saying, we agree to, do, to process this certification application so long as you agree to these elements. Um, okay, so given that you were responsible for helping develop all of those things and ensure that all of the processes and all of the standards were in compliance with um, the relevant laws, antitrust laws and due process requirements, can you talk a little bit, I only know the BACB now in terms of its capacity to do things with this, the staff that it has currently. What was the staffing situation like <laughs> in 1999 and throughout those years of development? Well, in the initial years, it was just Jerry. And uh, I was an, an independent contractor as well as we had independent contractors uh, working on various systems. Perhaps our examination delivery is an example, as well as intellectual property attorneys, where we outsource some of our trademark registration. So, uh, with regards to what Jerry was doing, he was a one-man show <laughs> operating out of his office in Tallahassee, working very closely with Michael Hemingway, as well as the other members of the board of directors and what began to be developed as a pool of subject matter experts. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll use that phrase as I speak throughout this podcast. What we're really saying when I refer to subject matter experts is just that. Somebody may be a subject matter expert if they're a BCBA or a BCABA or an RBT. Mm -hmm. They may be a subject matter expert if they're a consumer or educator or regulatory uh, representative. Okay. So you'll hear me make references to SMEs or subject matter experts. And Jerry worked, Jerry and Michael worked very closely in the early years with developing policies and procedures around those volunteers who would assist in our standard setting. Okay. So in working with volunteers and subject matter experts, Jerry and Michael and the board of directors had developed significant policies and procedures. And those policies and procedures had to comply with the law as well as accreditation mm -hmm. requirements. So that those early years in Jerry's office often comprised of long telephone conferences or ultimately video conferences 
Back in the day, it was a very slow and arduous process to conduct a video conference. (laughs) But it was a great, fast-moving period of time where you will notice if you go on archive.org, you'll see that we had the first website up by, I believe it was September or October of 1999. Mm -hmm. And so that was within roughly a year between when... Jerry had incorporated the organization, which was May of 1998, to having a full, full-blown on website by the fall of 1999. And during that time, is that when uh, the BACB initially developed the professional disciplinary and ethical standards? It is. In the early, early 1999, Jerry knew that there would need to be some standards. Mm -hmm. And we began working together, looking at what many of my clients had developed with other certifying bodies that I represented, had developed and what were generally considered standards for best practices in the field. Of course, that wasn't good enough (laughs) for Dr. Jerry Shook or the board of directors. Uh, They made substantive changes And that resulted in the first professional disciplinary and ethical standards, which was a very, very simplified process Mm -hmm. that applied to applicants and certificates. And the first professional disciplinary and ethical standards basically said the BACB may sanction, and by sanction I mean suspend, revoke, give you a warning, do something to impact your precisely certification or sure. And, and there were, uh, initially there were eight grounds for sanction and the, they were fairly simple and straightforward. The first was if it was discovered that somebody wasn't eligible, if it was discovered at any time that perhaps they hadn't earned the experience that they claimed they had earned or didn't have the degree that they claimed they had. The second is, was if they violated a BACB rule or procedure. Example of that would be if they failed to report a criminal sure. con- conviction. Okay. The third was intellectual property misuse. And if you go on the disciplinary actions page, you'll see a number of initial cases that involved cease and desist orders that were issued by the BACB. And in the early years, it took some fairly extensive policing of our trademark use to ensure that there weren't abuses occurring in the field. And Misty, just for the listeners, when you say intellectual property misuse, are you talking about people misrepresenting themselves by calling themselves board certified behavior analysts when they weren't or putting the BCB's logo on their website somehow representing themselves as if they were affiliated with the BACB? That's what you're talking about when you talk about intellectual property? Generally, yes, that those certainly are elements Mm -hmm. of BACB intellectual property. It could also be taking the BACB standards and publishing them on your private website or or in worst case scenarios, it may involve something akin to uh, theft of BACB confidential materials. Okay, so taking information that is the BACBs and using it when you are not, when you don't have approval or the right to use that information. 
And keep in mind, in the early years, that often was the case for many websites. That sure, you know, we didn't have a lot of standards around building websites, and so it was very common for people to say, "Oh, wow, this BACB logo looks so cool. Let me go put it on my website." <laughs> yes. Okay, so we have the first three of the eight. We've got if you weren't ineligible, if you weren't eligible in the first place, if you violated a BACB rule or procedure, if you misused intellectual property. So what was number four? Cheating on the exam. Aww. That was a biggie. <laughs> yeah, unauthorized assistance for the exam, or it could also include things like trying to write down exam questions mm-hmm. while you were taking the exam. So, or having unauthorized assistance if somebody else. Re- leaned over and said, hey, the answer is this. Right. Yep. So then number five is lying on the application for yourself or another. And you might think, well, why do you need number five when you have number one, which is, well, number Mm -hmm. five might apply in situations where somebody is falsifying supervision documents Mm -hmm. to help somebody else become certified. Sure. So number six, which is the one we'll speak about the most today, (laughs) gross or repeated negligence, incompetence, or malpractice. Sounds very legal. It is very, (laughs) well, at the time it was very legal. So first of all, it had to be gross. It had to be huge. A minor infraction would not qualify. Right. So when you say gross, you don't mean yucky. You mean large in scope or scale. Yes. Okay. And repeated or repeated negligence. And negligence is by by legal definition as well as incompetence or malpractice. So really in the early years, what we were looking for if a notice were filed against an applicant or certificate was a legal judgment. Mm, Okay. That in the early years, it pretty much had to be a legal judgment that they had engaged in gross or repeated negligence, incompetence or malpractice. Okay. So then number seven, which is fairly standard for certifying entities, which is to say if there's a sanction by another entity or a state licensing board or a governmental agent agency mm-hmm. that we could take action. And number eight is the felony or misdemeanor related to the practice of behavior analysis or public health and safety, where to define that it meant that we could pretty much include anything in there we needed to if it was a felony or misdemeanor. To ensure the safety of consumers Mm -hmm. and clients and things. I see. Okay. So those are the original uh, eight big Mm no-nos. Okay. And as time to... As time evolved, we modified those or better defined it. For example, we didn't want every misdemeanor if it involved minor infractions. So were the conduct guidelines developed at the same time as the disciplinary standards? I would say no, or I'm not sure. And here is why. (laughs) That is a very lawyerly answer. Yes, it was. At the same time that we were developing the professional disciplinary and ethical standards, Dr. John Jacobson was working on the what would become a code for the profession. And my understanding is that this was originally commissioned by the ABA Executive Council, but then they declined to adopt the code that John Jacobson had developed. And the code developed by John Jacobson, what he did, or as he self-described it, is he looked at Similar codes of other professions. Makes sense. See what other professions are doing. Yes. And he got to pick and choose what he thought would be the best provisions for behavior analysts. 
Now, you can imagine that as an attorney, I had some concerns about a code that would not be enforceable. We had the professional disciplinary and ethical standards, but they were very basic standards. Mm -hmm. And again, under Section 6, it had to be gross repeated negligence malpractice uh, type scenarios. So the conclusion was to call them guidelines. Make it very clear that these were not enforced from the get-go, but they were guidelines for the practitioner. So given that most helping professions have a code of conduct or ethics, can you talk a little bit more about why it's critical to have a code or set of standards that is enforceable? Well, the initial thoughts were that the standards would help the practitioner. The, the original guidelines for responsible conduct weren't intended to be enforced against the practitioner, but were intended to be informative to the practitioner. Mm -hmm. This was an evolving field. Practitioners needed guidelines. Well, and as behavior analysts, we certainly know it's important to um, clearly communicate expectations Mm -hmm. for one's behavior makes sense that that would be an initial step in, in the direction of letting practitioners know uh, how they should conduct themselves. Absolutely. And there, there would naturally be some overlap. So let's say somebody had a judgment against them that said they had engaged in, in mal- malpractice. In most instances, that judgment would actually mirror or implicate a specific guideline for responsible conduct. Mm-hmm. But the basis for an action by the BACB legal department would be under the professional disciplinary and ethical standards, which meant that that we wouldn't say you violated the guidelines. Mm-hmm. We would say this judgment was filed against you. Uh, we have evidence. You may respond to that, the evidence that we have, and then we will make a decision with regards to appropriate sanctions. All right. So if the original documents outlining the the ethics requirements for certificates were kind of born in 99, 2001, when were they first updated? When were the first standard updates um, taking place? The For the professional disciplinary and ethical standards, there have been two substantial updates. The first occurred in 2008 and That update was based on a December 2007 subject matter expert panel report. The panel was chaired by Dr. Jim Johnston, James Johnston, who had been the BACB's president and had served on the review committees since the BACB's inception in 1998. And the panel was also comprised of a number of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So the other SMEs, I will say, were consumers and review committee members who had served on uh, hearing the cases and complaints that had been filed over the years, as well as representatives of certain certificate uh, credentials. Mm -hmm. So the initial panel was a large panel. I remember sitting in the room. I can't say exactly how many members. It was a very large meeting. And from that, from that meeting, it was clear that there were certain provisions of the guidelines 
that needed to be adopted into the professional disciplinary and ethical standards. Okay. And the conclusion was to move those provisions into Section 6 so that it, we were no longer looking at gross repeated negligence mal- or malpractice, but we added a misconduct element. And by misconduct, we went on to define what would comprise misconduct or to take certain elements from the guidelines. Those included things such as client confidentiality, Mm -hmm. uh, compliance with HIPAA laws, uh, data collection practices, and- Better get that right. (laughs) Yes, matters that were particular to the field of behavior analysis. So the second change that occurred was in 2014. And we'll be talking a lot about that in a minute, but the goal of the 2014 changes to the professional disciplinary and ethical standards, the goal really was to combine the two two documents into one document. It was clear by 2014, the nexus between the two documents was missed by many and that there needed to be one document. So just to clarify, the intent was that they all, that they always, those two documents worked in tandem together, but practitioners and consumers maybe didn't quite understand how they interacted those two documents with one another. So the decision was made to combine them into one. That is very well said. Oh, Absolutely. Okay, well done. I learned from the best, Misty Bloom. <laughs> so you asked about when the documents were revised. There were also revisions to the guidelines as years progressed. The guidelines underwent uh, some small edits over the years. But then there needed to be, in 2004, as well as in 2010, subject matter expert panels convened to look at the guidelines. The uh, 2010 panel, for example, chaired by Dr. John Bailey, was looking at the guidelines in relationship to changes to the job task analysis. So as many of you may know or hear in another podcast, we have a job task analysis process that sometimes results in, well, always results in (laughs) changes to the task list. And so in 2010, it was thought that, that the guidelines needed to be reviewed, taking into consideration the revised job task analysis and task list. So I have a quick question that will take us on a really short detour. I just want to clarify that when you talk about the task list changes or the periodic reviews via a job task analysis or um, panels to review the codes of ethics or the previous iterations of those documents, those periodic reviews are required by the, the BACB is required to do those reviews by the accrediting body for the BACB. Is that correct? That is correct. The BACB is accredited by the National Commission for Certifying Agencies. And the accrediting body requires periodic review of all standards. Interestingly, the laws I mentioned in the beginning, the antitrust laws, the due process and contract laws, Mm -hmm. also apply to other BACB standards, not just the ethical standards. So what you're looking at when we talk about the task list update, Mm -hmm. it has to meet the minimum standards for the profession. Uh, There is a process that must be employed there to make 
the to ensure that the task list is in fact a legitimate standard for, or a reasonable standard for the profession. Right. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Certainly. So going back to um, all the changes that have occurred with the ethics requirements, when did the 2008 changes take effect? They took effect in 2010. And the reason there was a gap is this allowed for notice to the field. And in case you're wondering, at the time when the guidelines were revised in 2004 and in 2010, we didn't need to have a notice provision. Want to take a guess why? Because they weren't enforceable. Ah, there we go. So they weren't enforceable in and of themselves. They were not enforceable standards. Uh, I don't know about you, but I was stressed when she was like, take a guess. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) On the spot. (laughs) I love to put the pressure on. You know that? So did those changes result in any increases in uh, disciplinary cases? It's difficult to gauge how much of an increase occurred as a result of the change standards, particularly adding misconduct and adding in supervision activities. At the same time, there were other factors that could have influenced the growth in cases. Uh, Obviously, the growth in certificate numbers, you can look at the upward graph and see how our certificate numbers are increasing over the years. There's also just increased awareness in the field about the BACB complaint process. Practitioners were catching on. We were presenting at the national conventions and telling folks, hey, we have this process, use it. Consumers were increasingly becoming aware of our process and utilizing our process. And then we also had at the same time the onset of licensure so that our processes now needed to take into consideration what the impact might be with licensing boards, or even to look at decisions that were being made by licensing boards and and having corollary decisions within our processes. So then in 2014, there was another round of revisions, right? Yes, this is called the big shebang. <laughs> okay, so talk to us, Misty Bloom, Esquire, about the big shebang. Okay, well, many of the factors that I just into identified the growth of the field, the awareness of consumers, the awareness of fellow practitioners, licensure, all made it clear that there needed to be some changes to the standards we were enforcing and how we enforced those standards. So the in 2014, we convened a subject matter expert panel. We call it the quote unquote ethics work group. And the ethics work group was chaired by Dr. John Bailey. Again, it was comprised of subject matter experts in the field, including consumers, practitioners, stakeholders, representatives of certificates. The key goal of the subject matter expert panel was to see to it that we had one document and one document only that identified the standards for ethical conduct. And that resulted in the Professional and Ethical Compliance Code. There were some other changes, however, that were considered by the ethics work group and recommended. A big one was the statute of limitations. Looking at actions, would the work group considered what would be an appropriate uh, timeline for filing a notice of alleged violation. They determined six months 
would be, be, and that's six months from when somebody knew or should have known that there was a violation. The other big change, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Sarah, since this is in your wheelhouse now, was identifying the need for a coaching process or a behavior analytic process to handling uh, disciplinary matters. And I want to add here that I recognized fairly on the frustration that review committee members had with regards to taking a traditional legal approach to handling disciplinary cases. The review committee members were behavior analysts and they themselves identified cases that might benefit from a non-traditional sanction or in this case, non-sanction, uh, non-traditional action. So we talked about the sanctions before. We talked about revocation and suspension and warnings. There needed to be something in between there. And that something in between is coaching. Coaching allowed for two important opportunities. The first was to allow for there to be a more personal approach to just having a submission of a case to the BACB. The case goes out, we get noted, we give somebody an opportunity to respond. They respond, a review committee hears it. They make a determination. If the individual appeals, it goes to an appeal committee. So that's the traditional trajectory. What the 2014 ethics work group wanted to see was something where when a case is filed, if it didn't involve significant malfeasance or if it was unclear whether or not there was a violation, the matter could be submitted to a coach and the coach could look into the matter further, speak with the individual, review the case, and ultimately help in, in finding a resolution of the, of the matter to help ensure the behavior analyst would not have cases filed against them in the future on the same manner. So at that point, the goal of coaching, which sounded pretty simple, was fairly summarized to say coaching was designed to ensure compliance with the code. Mm -hmm. That's simple. It would seem this is actually a very detailed process. (laughs) In 2014, the legal department saw the hiring of three paralegals, as well as the hiring of Dr. Molly Lowe to oversee the coaching process. As Molly also assisted with data collection and looking at other processes within the legal department to help ensure that we were following best practices for reporting data Mm -hmm. to behavior analysts. At the time, 2014 would hearken a change in the entire approach to the legal department. Well, what was then the legal department? What what is now your ethics department, Tyra? (laughs) (laughs) And it really began to infuse some draconian legal processes with more up-to-date and informative behavior analytic processes. Uh, the addition of Dr. Molly Luke to the department was very impressive and taught me a great deal. 
And now you, Tyra, as the director of ethics, it it's really you bring an incredible skill set to the department. I'm going to use this opportunity to put a plug in there, since many people might not realize that in addition to being a behavior analyst, you also are educated as an attorney. You have a Juris Doctorate degree. That's true. You want to say anything on that point? How does it feel being a behavior analyst and also having legal training and working in in what is now your ethics department? Um, you know, I have worked in this field before I got my JD, even though I got my JD early on. Um, I was a CABA back in the day when there was only Florida providing certification. So I was a certified um, associate level behavior analyst. That's what it would have been back in the day. Back in the day when I had just my bachelor's. Um, and then I got my law degree thinking I would do special ed law. And I really hated sort of the day-to-day practice of what I would have been doing. So I stayed in the field and I'm really glad I did, but my legal background has always blended nicely with a behavior analytic approach because both are data-driven, both are, um, very kind of logic driven, both really are about helping individuals, ensuring that people are in the best position that they possibly can be. You know, in the law, it depends on which side, um, you know, of the courtroom you happen to be on. But um, I found um, always benefit in my legal education in terms of um, applying the principles in uh, um, a thoughtful way, but also just navigating systems like insurance funding or um, state departments of education and things like that. So, but this is not about me. This is about I know. <laughs> Although I see, I see it as big about both you and Sarah, because whereas the history of the legal department was really under my reign. The history of the ethics department is being written by both of you. Oh, that's so nice to say, Misty. Well, it just, to me, I think back on the early years and I think back about Dr. Shook and if he ever could imagine that we would be sitting here conducting this podcast (laughs) to get the message out to folks about the history of the ethics department. I mean, that in and of itself is an amazing accomplishment. And then I look at your role, Sarah, and you know, behavior analyst dedicated to education and coaching and th- what an important process this is and a unique process. I know of no other certifying body that offers a coaching process that similar to what the BACB provides. And it's an extensive investment. I'm I sit back and try and imagine what the department will look like in another 10 years. But the evolution of the department has been fun. It's really defined my career as an attorney with BACB. Sarah, do you have any other questions for Misty? No, I don't. (laughs) Misty, is there anything else that you want to make sure that folks know about um, before we wrap up? Hmm. Well, I will. If anyone's ever heard me speak publicly, I'm often quick to say that, in my opinion, the ethics define the profession, that you cannot have a profession of any sort absent 
significantly and fairly enforced ethical requirements. So I'm very pleased to see the investment the BACB makes into ensuring ethical fairness and that the processes are not just in compliance with the minimum standards that are required for the field, but are actually in compliance with the legal standards, the accreditation standards, and will meet the expectations of behavior analysts in the field. I think that's really well put. And the expectations for behavior analysts, I think, are always that we are working um, to benefit individuals regarding areas of social significance and importance to them to increase their quality of life. And so I think that that's very well said, that the ethics do drive the practice or the field. I I agree. Well, thank you for having me here. It's been fun. Thanks for telling us about the history of the ethics um, requirements and the department itself. Sure. If there's anything more you wish to know, just just ask. (laughs) Thanks so much, Misty. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Inside the BACB. Don't miss future episodes. Subscribe now.